Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, an unusual ventures podcast where we learn from the successful startup leaders of today how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya, and in every episode, I'll dive into a different aspect of early stage company building with our guests. Let's go. Our guest today is the CEO and co-founder of Aurora Solar and my dear friend, Chris Hopper. Aurora is a solar design platform started in 2013 by GSB classmates, Chris and Dele, and that has now powered the design and delivery of over 10 million solar projects. Aurora was last valued at $4 billion and has over 7,000 customers of varying sizes. So I'm so excited to learn more about your climate tech journey. And thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Of course. Thank you for having me, Sonia. So now I remember way back, I think in 2012, even before you guys started Aurora Solar, you were both individually interested in doing something in solar you had already been a part of starting B-Box, the home solar company in Africa that I happened to be an investor in. And Delhi was already fooling around with like financial instruments for climate. You were both individually interested. I'm curious, so how did you actually kind of come together and arrive on your insight around you know, building design software for the industry? Mm. Yeah, good, good question. I mean, it's hard hard to say when exactly it started because one thing leads to to another. So, starting at the very beginning, I studied electrical engineering for undergrad, and during that time, I was really interested in how how my, might I apply my my skills and do something, you know, to to better the world in some way, shape, or form. It felt kind of useless to just build AM radios in a lab. Well, I'm like. I'm an engineer. I should I should do something. So that was my motivation for entering the the off grid solar space. So I spent two years with some friends trying to figure out how do we sustainably electrify off grid communities in developing countries where there's more than a billion people worldwide without access to electricity, which is kind of a mind blowing mind blowing fact. And so did that for a couple of years, and then started or helped start Bbox back in 2010. But then my my life took me a different different route. I came to to California, to, to Stanford for business school, where we met, and also I met Della Sam, my my co founder, and yeah, the two of us just first and foremost became friends. We just met socially, hung out, started talking about you know life um, after business school, what we might do individually, and uh, through conversation, uh, I shared with him what I you know the work I'd done in, in Rwanda, the off grid space, installing very small scale solar installations and Sam Dele having grown up in, in Kenya said, Hey, you don't have to go off grid for energy to be an issue, even in the right. city, even in Nairobi where, where I grew up, um, you know, that's a big, big problem. You know, people have power cuts. They spend a lot on their bills. They run diesel generators, but Hey, we have a lot of sun, right? Like wouldn't, wouldn't solar make sense there? I was like, yeah, that makes, makes sense on a, on a high level. And so we basically hatched the idea of starting a solar installation business at a time focused on emerging markets. That was the original business idea. And so we put together a pilot project like to show ourselves we can do this, show our investors, show clients that we can do this. Let's piece together a, a pilot. We found a school in Nairobi in Kenya that wanted to go solar. We raised a loan. We obviously designed a system. We hired local engineers. 
and then flew down there to to install the system during sort of our summer internship, if you will, between our two years of business school. And so that was the original idea or business that we wanted to start. And then what started happening is other people started reaching out to us. I said, because the, the system worked out and it was sort of the quintessential solo su success story. No more power cuts because we put batteries in place. They saved on their bill every month because <clears throat> they produce some of their own energy and uh, well, no more diesel generators. So it was a, a great success. And other people heard about it. They're like, hey, does solar make sense for me? I also want to save on my bill. I also have power cuts. You know, should my building go go solar? How much would it cost? How much would I save? And we're like, well, we don't know. It depends, right? This is sort of the 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 central question of solar that you have to answer over and over again. You have to go, you know, well, determine whether a, a building is a fit for solar and 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 what to do, how to design it, how to finance it, over and over again. And so we quickly realized if we wanted to scale this as a business. We needed software to help us do that and to make data-driven decisions in the process. And that's how we came across the idea of, of, of what is now Aurora. Really, really helpful. What was, the, what was the first customer you had in mind for the software? It sounded like, you know, initially the customer was yourself. You had gone through this mm -hmm. process of trying to design one project. And when you thought about, okay, who are the other people out there that meet the same criteria, have the same problem? How did you think about who was going to be kind of your first desperate customer looking for what you are going to offer them already? Yeah, so the, like you said, the very first customer, if you will, was was us. We built this for ourselves. Um, and quite literally so, because initially we didn't intend to start a solar uh, a software business. Right. We, we just built, built a small web app for internal purposes and that kept growing and at some point i don't know it was probably a couple months after late 2012 maybe early 2013 we uh, we kind of took a step back and we're like hold on this keeps growing um like why are we reinventing the wheel clearly people are installing solar <clears throat> not just in emerging markets but in the u.s also there must be something that we could just buy off the shelf right that people people use and so we looked around and we were quite surprised that there wasn't wasn't a great solution. That was another, I guess, the second aha moment. We're like, wow, this is this is strange, right? This is not not how we expected the industry to look, and we thought not how we thought it would look. There was some early sort of SaaS startups that were just just starting, but nothing even remotely close to what we thought there should be. And so it was sort of a gradual evolution. It wasn't like a you know, woke up, let's build software. It was sort of a, you know start a installation business, build software for ourselves. Know, do that for a while and like oh let's look around and like oh wait wait a second there's nothing and then we actually got introduced to an early advisor through the gsb network who had spent a couple of years in maybe six years in solar prior larger solar companies and so i started chatting with him about our idea and he's like oh yes i've been i've been saying this you know internally for such a long time we need to build something and so he joined joined us early on and guided our development so we had sort of a was a customer in-house in a way right. through this advisor. Right. He, he, he'd seen it from the perspective of scaling this type of organization. And then we also obviously reached out to quote-unquote real customers, prospective customers. And it was literally as simple as you know, going through the phone book or Googling local solar installers and picking up the phone and saying, hey, we're working on something that you know, could be of interest to you. Can we swing by and, and, and show you and get your feedback? And uh, yeah, we did that uh, a bunch in the in the early days. 
this is before we had anything to to sell or you know we're just building our own thing right and mm. so many questions so what did the shape of the industry look like at that time like how much of the solar installation market was you know few like of the big public companies mm. versus kind of the long tail of you know mom and pop family businesses solar installers like how, what was the shape of the market at the time and i'm curious whether you reached out just to the small local installers or did you kind of interview across the spectrum kind of big companies small companies to understand okay how are you solving this problem right now yeah good question we the industry at the time was was actually very f- concentrated at least in in part there was right about 40% was solar city at the time right which now is got acquired by tesla it's tesla solar and then there was a couple larger ones and then there was sort of a long tail so it's fairly concentrated that was always a question we would get in the early days like hey is this a market where it's just going to be two right. three five customers um we never believed that just of the the way we understood the dynamics of solar we didn't think it was it's a very local business so it's it's not something that lends itself to there's some benefits to scale for sure but not something that we we thought would be would be very ultimately just to to right. or a limited number of players in terms of the outreach you know i can't say we were particularly structured about it it's not like we had like here's the map of the market let's make sure we sample from all this it was is very we took whatever opportunities we we got through the network <clears throat> so people were interested and um yeah honestly those nuances didn't matter as much at the time anyway right there's definitely a way to position and structure a product for enterprise say versus smb and there's obviously implications on, on many fronts for that but when it comes to the core design part that was really the the core of like where we create value and add value it's kind of the same. I mean, whether it's a, it's a big company, a small company, they do the same thing on for each project, right? Which is right. create a, they want to create a roof model. They want to figure out how many panels fit. They want to calculate irradiance, how much sun you get where, how much energy is going to produce, how much savings is going to generate, all these calculations. And those are fundamentally the same. And then, yes, then there's a second question. Okay, how do we now wrap that in a go-to-market motion and that sort of general process and permissions and maybe like, that that target different segments, but that's sort of a at least for our our kind of product, sort of step step two, step right. one. That was the necessary. <clears throat> the first step was nail the core core workflow, and so right. there was just about talking to folks on the ground. You know, folks who live in in AutoCAD all, all day and SketchUp they would use or Excel. It was sort of this. They had this tool soup that they pieced together, uh, and we just talked to a lot of these folks. Now, what interesting huh? too. Yeah, SketchUp. I mean, it's sort of, that was also a bit of an insight because we realized that sort of, here's, here's the issue in, in solar. You want to create a, ideally, a 3D representation of the, of the home. Right. <clears throat> the question is, how do you do that, right? You can do that with AutoCAD, but that's quite complicated. And, you know, some people can do it, but, you know, many are not as skilled enough. And certainly at the velocity you want to create these, it becomes prohibitive. And so then SketchUp is like one step down. It's a little bit simpler. And so we took that one, you know, even one step further because SketchUp is still a fairly general modeling software. And we took it one, you know, we just said, okay, we just build great roof modeling software on right. top of which you can put solar. And so that was that was a big, big part of our value add. So how do we take the thing they're trying to do, but really streamline it and make it hyper efficient for their, for their use case? 
Yeah. And then one an interesting thing too that happened is, you know, as you start talking to people, you can you build sort of the mental map of the world. If you as these data points trickle in, you see, okay, this type of person worries about this, right? Or the company in this geography cares about this and not about that, right? The sales reps cares about this, the engineer cares about that, the owner cares about that. And so you start building the building the the, the, the sort of map of the mental map of the world as you have more of these conversations. So that was also very, very useful and why it's important to obviously not just talk to one, one person, but, but multiple. What would you say was the big aha moment for your customer? Was it, oh my God, I'm going to save so much time. Like I can get to the output I wanted like way faster. Or was it, oh, I can create something I will be proud of and I couldn't even do it with SketchUp. Like what was the big aha moment for your early adopters? I said there was a couple, but one central one that really drove us in the early days in particular and, and where I think we had a, a, a big part to play in sh- shifting the industry in a, in a, towards a better place was when we started in solar, it was still very common to do site visits very early in the funnel. So if a homeowner was interested in going solar, there'd be an installer, you know, a sales rep or whatever would get in a truck, would drive out for an hour to then person would be home, they drive back to the office and reschedule, drive back out. And they'd climb on the roof, they'd take shade readings on the roof. I've literally met people who fell off the roof doing that, so it's not a safe thing either. Anyway, then they'd drive back to the office, they plug into the computer, and then they get some shade values that they sort of ballpark into their production estimates. So it was a not an accurate process and a very expensive one, right? Because you have to, if you do that early in the funnel, you do that work five times, six times, eight times, you get paid once, right? Right. And so what we did is we said, hey, you don't have to drive out to the site. We believe that we, we can give you the same level of accuracy from your office, right? We can represent the system, the create a 3D model based on different data sources, imagery, LiDAR data, and weather data and so forth, calculate the irradiance in a much more granular uh, detail. And you can actually quote that from your office, saving the site visit, which is almost a thousand bucks per per install. So it's a significant savings for, for installers. So that was a big, big one where we literally had customers come up to us and say, hey, because of you guys, we don't have to roll trucks anymore. We did the math, we tested it, and we changed the way we do a business. And so that was a big, big unlock for for well, for them first and foremost, and then therefore for for us, right? Yeah, no, that 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 would be huge in terms of like how much risk it takes away from their ability to like reach out to more prospects and you know off make make more proposals. Like that that sounds incredibly valuable. How did you go about, you know, once you had figured out like what was the core product this customer wanted, what was your early go-to-market strategy? And, you know, one of the things we investors obsess a lot about, uh, maybe too much in the early days is, okay, if your customers have a certain ACV, right, like they will pay you, I don't know, $1,000 a month or something like that, then you have to have, you know, more inbound and a more low-touch sales model. You can't take, you know, six weeks to sell these customers because the LTV CAC won't add up in the end. What was what was kind of your early path to, say, scoring like your first hundred small customers? Like what worked well? How quickly did you get there? You know, I don't know if we took a textbook approach <clears throat> to that. We, well, just... 
spoke with people and people liked what we did and they referred us to other people. And we do a lot of trade shows, actually. There's right. uh, local trade shows that we did. We just man a booth and talk to folks for three days and collect the business cards and I hit them up after. And that was a lot of our initial, even before that, we did sort of road shows. So we did, right. a, I remember one time we did a three-week road show. We flew to, you know, it was Texas, uh, Las Vegas for a trade show, then Southern California, then to New England area. And we just hit up different installers and demoed and, and sold them that way. So it was a, almost a traveling salesman kind of thing. Um, right. Me and me and my, my co-founder doing that and one of our early advisors. So that's how we sold in the, in the early days. And so then it became, we did a lot of online demos, you know, acquired a little bit of web traffic and converted, you know, a bit of keywords and, and then converted. It was not particularly sophisticated. It was just a sign up here, book a demo. It was all through a demo because we cherished the customer conversation. So it was not a self-onboarding. It was not a very efficient process from a well, so the cost perspective because there's a human there talking, you know, doing five, 10 demos a day, that sort of thing. And we're charging 160 or 260 bucks a month. So maybe two grand a year. And many small companies, so many customers only bought one license. So right. it was not a not an optimized model by any stretch. And we, we then obviously got more refined as we as we grew and matured. But it didn't matter as much because the, the the product was resonating and we kept focusing on on that so yeah it, that was you know in the early days that's more that, that's what matters more than optimizing say the, the go to market motion that's something you right. can do right. after if you first optimize a go to market motion but don't have a product it sort of <laughs> doesn't doesn't work that way around makes sense and what were some of the early customer feedback that like helped you get more conviction around your product strategy? Any surprises, anything that made you kind of change what you were building, how you were positioning it? Because I noticed at some point you also went from mm. just kind of design software to know this will, you know, help you, you know, mm. design, build, deploy all of it. Any did Did that come from like early customer feedback? Yeah, there was, it depends on which, which phase of the business. The early days, the conversations were usually went something like, <clears throat> you know, we'd go, we'd demo and they'd be like, oh, guys, we, we love what you're doing. It's awesome. But I really can't use it day to day for X, Y, Z reason. Like, oh, shoot, but fair enough because <clears throat> the things made sense. And so sometimes I was like, I need to use this equipment or I need this kind of functionality. Mm. For example, initially we didn't have a, layout engines with placing panels sort of thing. Well, like, that makes sense. We guess we have to build that. So then we went back and we would go and, and we built that. And then we'd come back and then we the same people a couple months, a couple months after. And um, they'd be like, oh, that's fantastic. Love that you built that. But also we need A, B, and C. I'm like, God dang it. And so that was sort of the, 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 the loop. We go back and build that. And after, you know, at some point people start buying. And, and it's actually amazing how open people are when someone comes to them and is earnest and in, in caring about what they do and solving their, right. their problems. And so that was a, that's how we, we built the first, first product. But I would say it was equal measure um, vision and customer feedback. So we also came with an opinion. It wasn't just like we have no opinion, give us feedback. It was like, here's a vision, we, how we think solar should be designed, you know, right. not just today, but like in five, 10 years, we think there's all the benefits. And then we put it to the test and then we got feedback around it. And that's how we, 
we own it. Later, it got more refined. So then so some of the more organizational factors came in. So for example, I remember being at the trade show. This was one of my aha moments where I demoed you know, the whole software and I could tell the guy was liking it. He, 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 at the end, he's like, Chris, I, I, I love this. It's a fantastic level you guys have built. Uh, but can you please take away this feature, that feature, that feature? I was like, what do you mean? I just spent the last the last couple of years. I literally wrote the feature. You know, I, I go to myself. I'm like, why, why why should I take it away? We he's like, listen, I have a you know a, a twenty sales reps or something like that, and I don't want them to do these same things in a software. I don't want them to, for example, the ability to we, you can model trees in a in a software which cast shade, so you can represent the impact of shade on your system. He's like, I don't want them to be able to change tree heights, this virtually cut back the tree. Because if they cut back the tree, it shows more energy production, which makes it more likely that they get commission on their sale. But then I have to clean up on the back end of it because we're going to have problems with the customer. I'm like, wow, okay, that makes sense, right? It was sort of the insight that is not just about the product itself, right. but how does it fit, map to the organization and the incentives right. in the organization, the needs of the organization. That was, you know, Maybe two years in or so, it was sort of a big aha moment because it showed to me a whole new dimension of, of value that was, you know, actually very strong, and that we we then spent a lot of time thinking about how do we how do we make this, and especially for large organizations, that that's what matters is like how how do I how does it look from the perspective of that buyer, and, and how does this product fit into their their workflows and the, the needs of their org. Right. Like how how do you almost like productize trust and governance as a, as a part of this thing so that it's really easy for the sales team to work, but it's also really easy for the deployment team to trust that the customer will have a good experience. Now, it's really fascinating. And I guess, you know, you would, the fact that you were talking to not just the sales reps who would use the software, but also the designers, the owner of the business, mm. like that 360 perspective. I think this is kind of the unique mm. thing in if you're building what you know we describe as vertical software, right? When you're building software specifically for one industry, you need to understand every stakeholder's point of view to get the collaboration and workflow right, as opposed to just maybe, you know, if you had focused on the sales rep alone, you would have built something that maybe the owners didn't fully trust. So really, really helpful insight. Maybe switching gears a little bit to fundraising. I know, you know, you, even though you started the company in 2013 and you've had so much success in the past couple of years, it, in the early days, it was more of a windy road. And given the environment we are in right now, I would expect that that's going to be the experience for most founders, right? That are starting companies mm. this year or started last year. So what, what was it like kind of between 2013 and when you raised your Series A round in 2019, that six-year window? Like what, what was mm. it that helped you get the company to a fundable place? What were your Series A investors looking for in terms of mm. evidence that you had found product market fit? Yeah, and maybe a quick, quick background on, on that because we're somewhat of an unusual company, right? As you said, in 2019, we raised a, a round. We've, we're now on Series uh, D. So we've, we've you know, 
went down the va- venture path quite successfully the last last couple of years. But the early years were very different. So we started in a pilot project was in 2012. We incorporated a company, a software company in 2013. Right. We raised a small seed round, like 925K in 14, but we basically bootstrapped from 2014, 13, 14 through, through 2019. Right. And so that was, I would say, in well, equal parts because we could, right? In the sense that, we, look, the product resonated and we would just kept right. selling. So we went to maybe a million in ARR within the first year or so. And then we just kept kept growing and, you know, sell a couple of deals, hire an engineer, sell a couple of deals, hire an engineer, build more product. And that was sort of the the loop. And it was a it was a grind, right? It was took took five years to get to scale at that point where it fifty people or so, just shy of fifty people. And basically organically we managed all uh business in the cash flow document. Right. Like every every engineer was line item or like how much cash we get in, how much it comes out. And so that was the other but also, you know, it was not easy to raise money for 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 what we're doing. And that's maybe where it connects to where we are today or the environment we're in today. Although in, in our case it was a bit more idiosyncratic. You know, it was mm. possible to raise money at the time in thirteen. Very possible, just not for solar. Right, because uh, we were right. It came right after a boom and bust in clean tech, sort of right. eight through eleven. So I was still very much in recent memory. People were like, eh, this clean tech thing. And, you know, folks lost a lot of money, and it was a uphill conversation, honestly, with most investors. It was like, okay, what is solar? How does it work? How big is even this industry? So it's damn questions. What even does an installer do? Why do they need software? How critical is yours? What, how's it differentiate? There's so many questions you need to go into that it was just difficult and impossible really to, to raise money. We found some great angels who believed in us and some seed fund cheap pair out of, out of Palo Alto. They've been fantastic for us. Who believed in us early, early in the early days, but on the whole, the market was not there. And it was yeah. frustrating because we're like, well, it's not about that. It's about what clean tech is going like the future is going to be powered by solar energy there's massive transformation happening in in energy and solar's big big theme in that and so you know this sort of well the way to resolve that tension for us was to say okay you know we'll just do our thing we'll just uh, we believe in this and we just we build product and and it resonated with the market and that's what kept us going like yeah we're not you know it wasn't a rocket ship in terms of its growth, but we're like, well, we have a business and the business keeps growing and the customers love it. And they say it changed their business and we we kept the kept it lean and kept growing. And so we just had that sort of fundamental belief in our in our business. Right. Uh, it was a yeah, there was never a question whether this would, would be a business in my in my mind. Um it was a bit of a question right on timing. How how long will it take for the world to to wake up again to renewables and is this going to happen in two years or in, in 10, right? That's somewhat out of your control, but no, no doubt that there would be a business and that in the long run, it you know, has the potential to be a very big business as well because we need to make that shift to, to renewables and there needs to be a software layer in it. And so what, what changed in 2019? Was it just that now you as a mm. business having bootstrapped all these years had enough scale and momentum mm. Was there also like change in the regulatory environment and the climate mm. outside? Like, you know, was there a tipping point for Aurora Solar in the, the last three years? Uh, yeah, it was a, there's a quote by Hemingway that when he's asked, I think, how he, how he went broke. 
he said first slowly and then suddenly and kind of the <laughs> arc of the company feels the same same way it's even the series a wasn't all that straightforward because the world hadn't fully caught up yet um Actually, I also realized I didn't answer your previous question. What what did investors look for in a Series A and product market fit and so forth? We were actually a bit unusual in that sense because our Series A was maybe more like a B in terms of its scale. You know, 50 people uh, cash flow positive. We had clearly had product market fit because customers right. were, were buying it. We were growing. What we didn't have was sort of venture type growth. You know, we were growing maybe 30-ish, 40% year over year. But it turns out it also matters how you capitalize a business. And, right. and so there's a, a lot of power in that that we, we managed to unlock with the resources we raised in the Series A. But like I said, it wasn't a, an easy race either because the world hadn't fully woken up. And while we had a business and people were really intrigued and particularly it was very unusual to see a Silicon Valley company that was bootstrapped like we had. So that that caught a lot of got a lot of attention, but people didn't quite... Off, many people didn't get over the, the growth rate. That wasn't what they would normally expect. But we found people who did believe in us, right? And it came, uh, in our case, mostly from the, I'd say, belief in, in us as, as founders and what we're doing, but also belief in the, in the market. So we found right. investors who understood what we were doing much more fundamentally than, than the, the folks who said no. For the folks that said no, it's still very much that uphill conversation. For the folks that said yes, our, our Series A lead energized. It was sort of a love, love at first sight kind of kind of thing. We remember we're on a call and we're trying to we're like go to a deck. Like, oh, let's tell you about solar, and they're like, let's just <laughs> fast forward. We we get it. We you know Can we've we been looking at this. Start at slide nineteen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's get right. to the good stuff. And we're like, wow, right. this is you know we don't have to talk about you know uh, why this is going to be big. You're like, no, we get it. We just you know let's talk about the business. And so that's the other thing is you don't have to get a hundred yeses you know they don't actually do anything for you you just have to get you know one from the from the right person right that's the the tough thing about fundraising because there's a lot of no's i mean i've i've I've, you know i don't know how many no's we've gotten over the years but we've we've found the right partners along the way and i've been i'm very grateful for that awesome yeah no i this is definitely advice i give to a lot of founders doing investor outreach is Look for people who are already talking about the space you are working in, as opposed to trying mm-hmm. to, you know, do kind of a cold outreach to everyone running a VC fund. There's so many funds out there, so many different specializations. Like, find people who already believe in your market hypothesis, and you know, you only need a couple of those. You don't need, to your point, a hundred mm-hmm. yeses. In fact, it's much more time efficient to just go to the people who are already writing about your space, saying they want to invest in it, as opposed to trying to mm-hmm. convince someone who's never thought about your space, trying to change their mind. It's actually a bad use of your time and their time. So mm-hmm. yeah, 100% agree with that, You know, having been on both sides of that table. I'm curious, especially given you know, you're in climate tech, like how much time or effort do you spend, uh, you know, either in the early days or now in terms of understanding regulatory tailwinds? Like, is there something that, you know, policymakers are working on that will either help or hurt you? Like, did you get involved or, you know, stay on top of it in any special way? Honestly, not 
not really. I mean, obviously we followed along because these things right. matter to us, A, from a market perspective and B, a very specific sort of product requirements. You know, if there's a certain tax credit or a certain utility rates change in a certain way, then that's something, you know, that we, our clients care about and therefore we need to represent in the software. So in that sense, yes. But look, in the early days, we're just like five guys out of, you know, uh, out of a at a desk, you know, with, with with five laptops sort of thing. Like, there's not, you know, what what are we going to do? Shift shift policy. So it is. We we didn't. Now we're we're doing much more of it because we're now a much larger large organization. We're we're speaking for more of the industry, right? right? Because a lot of our you know installers, sole professionals run on us. So we we're, we're speaking up more, supporting folk, for example, in analysis supporting industry organizations to understand what could be certain effects of policy changes. So in that sense, we're doing more, but we've never made the business contingent on any sort of policy. We always thought ultimately in the long run, you know, the world will catch up. And we always thought there's sort of hidden, hidden upside in what we're doing because it's just made sense. And it made sense to support it from the policy perspective, but frankly, it was bumpy along the road. In, in, in the industry, they call it the solar coaster. If you've been in it long, long <laughs> enough, there's ups and downs. Right. And there's, right. you know, if, now we have a lot of tailwinds, but we've also had, had headwinds. But it's, it's, you know, on a long enough time scale, we knew this would point up and to the right. And so that's what we, what we bet on. We never made it contingent on policy. Even if we could influence somebody so unpredictable, it didn't seem like a, like a sound, sound way to run, run a business. So we just said, hey, let's do our own thing and uh, we'll take any tailwinds that come along. Makes sense. And did you kind of start thinking more about enterprise customers? And, you know, is that a big part of Aurora's future? Is it about, you know, going up market, bigger customers, new geographies? Like what, what does that look like? It was around, around the Series A. But not necessarily that it coincided it was more coincidental. It wasn't that the Series A led to it per se, but right. around the same time, we, 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 a year before we sold our first enterprise customer, we were in conversation about other ones. I've got another pull too from the enterprise in terms of feature requests. They're like, hey, can you, right. you know, oh, we need SSO. Oh, we go, SSO, really? Sure. You know, with the API, here's a feature, the request for the API. We need permissioning. That was a, you know, the, the other version was on permission. It was not a problem until we talked to cust- enterprise customers and it's, like one of the biggest features in terms of value it drove, uh, contract value was was a was one of the easiest to, to ever build. I think it took one sprint. The difference between for a user between a regular team member we call it and a limited team member, and the diff- only difference is a limited team member at the time only limited team member can only see their own projects. They can't see the rest of the organizations. Which you know, if you have fifty sales reps in one account, you definitely don't want them to you know, touch each other's projects. And so that was, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, but in the early days it didn't matter because it's all SMB and it's like, oh, it's like two, five, 10 people in the organization, there's a lot of trust and not a problem. But again, if you think about it from the, from a larger org's perspective. And so we, we layered in more and more of those and went more up market. And so that's definitely a big part of our business now. And there's a lot of value to be created there. That's sort of in addition to the core design functionality that we provide. Makes sense. Yeah, I remember we had this, well, we were at Amplitude going through the same journey of like going up market. We had this kind of dedicated pod around 
SSO and permissioning. <laughs> that was, to your point, probably the most valuable work to do from a revenue perspective, but also like the least interesting work to do from an engineering perspective. And it's funny mm. how in B2B software, that's almost always like an overlap in, in that and in, in, in those two attributes. So maybe wrapping up, like what would be your advice for seed stage founders, you know, starting out in 2022 in this environment where, you know, pretty much, mm. you know, hard for almost any first time founder to raise money all over, all over again. What would be your advice having, you know, experienced a fairly unique version of the startup journey where, it, you know, you like bootstrapped a lot, felt slow at first, and then took off once you capitalized the business. Yeah, you know, so I try to drive lessons from, from our journey. It's, I think it, one of the key ones is work on something you, you care about, right. right? This whole journey is so unpredictable. Unpredictable, it's a lot of work and effort, and, you know, it can be, can be long, right? Certainly if it's successful. And there'll be ups and downs, plenty of them along the way. And the environment is not always going to be, you know, in your favor. Last two years, it was a very different, sort of easy, many dimensions. But it's in this this environment. I think it's much easier if you if you work on something you care about. So that's what carried us. Is we're like, this is something worth doing. This is something that should exist. And then, yeah, you know, obviously we want to build a big business in the process, and we want to raise money one day. But it wasn't about raising money. It wasn't about a valuation headline. It wasn't about being in TechCrunch. It was like, no, that's, this is, this is going to push the world in the right direction. And that's what right. fundamentally um, kept us going. Also, you got to enjoy the, the process, you know, with all those ups and downs, it's, you know, and that's for some people, it's not for others. And so knowing that upfront is also important for me. It's always been a, just fun building a company, right? And it's, yeah, uh, that's, that's what carries you through through all those 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 bumps on the on the on the road along the road. The, the final thing is, you know, if I think back to us, I, I remember like sometimes being a bit bummed. I was like, why can't we raise money? And you know, some of our classmates went out and raised large rounds. I'm like, Jesus, how how much and how? And you know, we're asking for you know a couple hundred k, and we couldn't you know, couldn't get that. And so it might feel. Like that's not a good time to start a company, but in retrospect, it was a perfect time for us to start this company. And, you know, because by the time the, the world had woken up again, it was too, too late. You know, we had, we'd spent five, six years building this company right. and people are now waking up. Oh, there's something happening in climate. I'm like, oh, great. Welcome. You know, <laughs> and there's more, the more, to, more to do, right. but you know, to start a solar design software company, like you had already started years before. And so. So yeah, it's it's funny how that works sometimes. It, it might feel like it's not the right time, but you'd be surprised. You know, in five ten years, we'll we'll look back and we'll we'll see, you know, many great companies built during during that time. I think great companies can be built in any environment, and in particular in this one, it sort of improves signal to, to noise. But it's something you've got to believe in in the end, and that's and have, have fun fun along the way. Yeah, I think being in the trenches without any hype allows you to like really focus mm -hmm. on your customer. Like how many installer mm -hmm. conversations do you think you had in those first yeah. five years? Like a thousand? I don't, I don't even know. It's, <laughs> I mean, even at, at trade shows alone, it'd be, you know, probably a hundred conversations at one. Right. And, and then Sam too. So we, you know, two founders. So it's just, yeah. 
that's that's in the end that's all that matters right the customer yeah. making them happy and, and and delivering value to them and then good things will come come from there well what an inspiring story and you guys are just getting started i'm definitely you know rooting for you thank you so much for being on this show it was lovely learning more about aurora solar of course thanks for having me You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sankhya, an unusual ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.